from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, page 918 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But... You are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. May God add his blessing to his, his, his word and its explanation from Jim. Amen. I also wanted to begin today uh, with just a word of thanks. It's been uh, over two months uh, since uh, Lynn and I began in our our roles here at Geneva, and I just wanted to say thank you uh, to everyone who's uh, welcomed us so graciously and kindly and generously. Uh, You've loved us well. We've been well-fed. We've had lots of wonderful talks uh, with so many of you, and just wanted to say thank you. Uh, We are really grateful uh, to continue to be with you and to be a part of what God uh, is doing here at Geneva. And I have a concrete uh, way of thanking you today. Uh, because um, if any of you have seen my office, you know I have a problem. My name is Jim Kirk, and I'm a bookaholic. And uh, I have some books that I couldn't quite squeeze on the shelf, but I don't give away bad books. These are all really good books that I either have extra copies of or that I think would really be a blessing uh, to someone else. And so in the the back today, you'll find a table uh, with a number of free books on it, and uh, please take one uh, today. I'd love for you to have it. In fact, if you read it, I'd love to get together with you and, and talk about it. And um, in fact, there's a whole box of about 30 copies of one book. I told you I have a problem. Uh, it's called Song of a Scientist by a certain man named Cal DeWitt, uh, one of our elders here. Uh, and uh, uh, I love this so much, I, I bought a couple boxes of them a, a while ago. And, and so for anyone who, uh, if you haven't read this, I, I, I love this book. It's, it's like Cal's uh, spiritual environmental memoir. 
It's a wonderful little book, and uh, there should be plenty for, for everyone. So uh, please take one as uh, my gift to you today. So some of you may have heard of this obscure TV show called Stranger Things. Uh, for those of you who haven't, the, the premise of this show, it's on Netflix right now, is that in the, the mid-1980s, a, a group of kids uh, have stumbled across a, a science experiment that, that's gone awry. Uh, some scientists have intentionally, sort of unintentionally, opened a door into another dimension. And this other dimension replicates everything in our world, except it's full of this thick darkness and, and these frightening monsters. Now they, they call it, the kids call it the upside down. Now, unfortunately, through the rift that these scientists have created, this is not really a pro-science show, uh, th through this rift that the scientists have created, the, these monsters of the upside down are infiltrating our world. And, and one of the ways that they show this happening is that there's this kind of evil vine that's growing uh, through this doorway uh, into our dimension. And, and the scientists are constantly using these flamethrowers to burn it back and just push it back uh, as, it, as it sends its tendrils in, into our world. And it just keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. And in one scene, there's this scientist in his white coat, and he's showing this, this horrible vine to some visitors and what they're doing to, to contain it. And he explains that they've made a huge mistake, and now they're trying to deal with it. He says... I'd call it one of a heck of a mistake, wouldn't you? See, the thing is, we can't seem to erase our mistake. But we can stop it from spreading. It's like pulling weeds. Now, really, I just wanted to fit Stranger Things into my sermon here today. But this is also, I think, a really great image for how we often approach uh, problems in our own lives. Our unhealthy patterns our resentments, our habits, our addictions. We often see the symptoms of those problems, but we don't know how to deal with the root, get to the source of it. And, and so we settle for pulling weeds, for containing and controlling and managing. And this is true in every area of life, personally, socially, politically, now, how do we get to the root of our problems? Well, the central claim of the Christian faith is that God has done just this. That he's gone to the root. And we heard the result today in our text that David read. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's what we want to talk about today. We've been going through Romans uh, this fall. And Mike and I will be bringing our series to a, a conclusion this month with four sermons on this great chapter of Romans, Romans 8. And we're going to be looking at these first 11 verses today. And so let's consider what we learned from our passage today under, under three, setting, three headings. Why, is there, why, why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why we still struggle with condemnation and how we can be truly free from condemnation and, and go to the root of our struggles. 
So why there is no condemnation in verses 1 to 3, why we still struggle with condemnation in verses 4 to 8, and how we can be truly free uh, from these feelings of condemnation in verses 9 to 11. So first, why there is no condemnation? The answer is the same thing we've uh, seen throughout our study of Romans. This distinction that Paul makes between the gospel and the law. You remember the law demands, do this. The gospel announces, Christ has done it all. The law shows us all the ways that we fall short and don't measure up. The gospel tells us all the ways that God loves us despite our failure. The gospel brings freedom. The law brings condemnation. Now, even if you've never read the Bible before, I think you can understand what it means by condemnation. It's it's like what I once heard David Letterman say about the experience of going on television every night to host The Late Show. He said, every night you're trying to prove your self-worth. It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. If I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I've come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. Because I'm not playing a character. I'm trying to give you the best version of myself. That, in a nutshell, is what the Bible means by condemnation. That kind of treadmill of proving your self-worth. It's not necessarily the result of some great sin, but it's this, it's this experience of, of not measuring up, of having to prove yourself in the eyes of the world, your teachers, your parents, your children, yourself. Under the law, self-worth becomes something that you have to achieve, that you have to earn for yourself. And what the gospel declares is that, is that there's, a, there's another way than having to earn your self-worth. It can be received as a gift. A Christian's worth is no longer found in what they do or in what they don't do. It's found in Christ. That's what's described here in, in verses 1 to 3. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. There is now no condemnation because God has done what the law could not do. In Christ, he was condemned in our place. C.S. Lewis famously uh, gives us a picture of this kind of substitutionary sacrifice in the Chronicles of Narnia. In the first book in the series, The, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, you know how the four siblings find a door into another world. Kind of like Stranger Things. They discover that this, this world, Narnia, 
has been captured by an evil witch who's, who's rebelled against Narnia's rightful king, the, the lion Aslan. And as they enter this world, one of the brothers, Edmund, he falls for the witch and he betrays his siblings to, to join the other side. Uh, well, they go, they go to rescue him, but in a key scene, the white witch explains that the law demands that someone must die for what has been done wrong. This idea of justice, she says, is, is woven into the deep magic of the world. Here's what she says to Aslan. Have you forgotten the deep magic, asks the witch. Now, let us say I have forgotten it, answered Aslan gravely. Tell us of this deep magic. Tell you, said the witch, her voice growing suddenly shriller. Tell you what is written on that very table of stone which stands beside us. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery I have a right to kill. And so that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. Unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. It is very true, said Aslan. I do not deny it. And then Aslan does something shocking. He takes Edmund's place. He dies so that Edmund may live. And so the witch takes Aslan, and, and she kills him, and, and she begins to celebrate her victory. And later, you know, the two sisters, Susan and Lucy, they, they come back to this stone table where Aslan was killed to, to mourn his death when something dramatic happens. The, the table cracks in half, and suddenly Aslan is there, and he's, he's alive again. Lewis writes, There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean, asked Susan. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she, she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Friends, this this is uh, such a beautiful picture of what happened on the cross. Jesus took our place. He died so that we might live and, and know that our worth is not measured by what we've done, but only by his gracious love. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So then, why do we still struggle with condemnation? Feeling like we don't measure up, that that God is not a loving father, but a, a distant judge. Why do we so easily lose our joy in this message? It has to do with what Paul describes in, in verses 4 to 8. Here Paul describes two ways of life. The one he calls the way of the flesh, and the other is the way of the spirit. And these are two different mindsets, two different ways of thinking and being, especially in relationship to God. And the spirit here is, is God's spirit. And so it leads a person into communion and union with him into this life of life and, and peace. 
that God means for us. But Paul says in verse 7 that the other way, that the the way of the flesh is the mind that is set on the flesh, that is is hostile to God, that sees God as as an enemy. One of the best illustrations of what this mindset looks like comes, I think, from the 1967 movie uh, starring Paul Newman, Cool Hand Luke, one of my favorite movies. Luke is a a prisoner in a Florida prison camp who refuses to submit to the system, and he he repeatedly attempts to escape. This movie has so many great scenes, but there are two that, that have always struck me. The first is after one of Luke's escape attempts, uh, where the warden, they call him the, uh, the captain, they, he puts chains on, on Luke's legs. And this captain is, is completely insensitive to the men he oversees. He's mean. He uh, demands arbitrary obedience to the rules of the prison. And so after he chains up Luke, the captain says this to him. You're going to get used to wearing them chains after a while, Luke, but you're never going to stop listening to them clinking because they're going to remind you what I've been saying for your own good. And Luke responds, I wish you'd stop being so good to me, Captain. This really makes the captain angry. Don't you ever talk that way to me, never. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach, so you get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants it. Well, he gets it, and I don't like it any more than you men. And so eventually, even wearing these chains, Luke uh, manages to escape again, and the authorities are quickly after him. And as they're closing in, Luke hides in a church. Very final scene of the movie. He's inside a church, and he starts talking to God. He says, From here, it looks like you got things fixed so I can never win out. Inside, outside, all them rules and regulations and bosses. You made me like I am. So just where am I supposed to fit in? I guess I'm pretty tough to deal with, huh? A hard case. Yeah, I guess I got to find my own way. And then the sheriff and, and the captain arrive, and, and after Luke shouts at the captain, he's shot, and he, and he dies. And that's how the movie ends. I, I think Luke here is, is a great illustration of, of this mind set on the flesh. Because it's, it's not just that Luke is rebellious against the rules. His, his rebellion really is rooted in this mindset about who God is, what, what he's like. And for Luke, his, his view of God, you see, is basically just a larger vision of the captain this giver of rules and and regulations that he demands that people keep, even even when they're totally arbitrary. And so Luke becomes this great modernist hero by by rebelling against uh, any authority. He's got to find his own way. This is what Paul means by the flesh. It's this this fallen human nature that, that believes that God is not really on your side that he's not really committed to your flourishing, that doubts his, his goodness and sees him only as this giver of rules that you have to keep. I think this kind of mindset 
is, is deeply rooted in, in all of us, and it, it's why we still struggle so often. On the one hand, we, we hear the message of no condemnation, and we do believe it. But in the back of our mind, we, we still believe that God is not really on our side. To, to walk according to the Spirit, to, to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, is to have your whole view of God changed. This is what Jesus came to show. He reveals that, that God the Father is not like the captain in Cool Hand Luke. The, the Father is not this angry lawgiver who just wants the rules to be kept. If you want to know what God is like, friends, Look at Jesus. This is the Christian faith in a nutshell. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He shows us that at the heart of God is suffering, self-sacrificial love. And the Father doesn't have to be convinced about that. You know, sometimes we say, God loves you because Christ died for you. And what I think we hear is that somehow Jesus had to persuade God to love us by dying for us on the cross. What what the Bible actually says is Christ died for you because God loves you. The love of God is the reason for the death of Christ. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. Or or Romans 8, 3, God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son. (laughs) This is what what, Kulan Luke and, and what we all so desperately need. We need a total renovation of our view of God. That he is this kind of loving father who's who wants to save us. So Here's what I'm saying. If we're going to be truly free from condemnation, we must see that the Father has given us everything he has. He's given his son to die for us, but he's also given us something else. He's given his spirit to live inside of us. This is what we see in verses 9 to 11. Those who are in Christ have the spirit of Christ. Verse 9. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Things are different, Paul says, because God's Spirit is inside of you. Yes, you still live in this fallen world. Yes, you can, you can still die because we're, we're still continuing to deal with the results of sin and the brokenness that it brings. We have the experience that Mike described so well last week of there being two of me, being both a saint and a, a sinner. But the gospel declares that what defines us on the deepest level is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And when we walk according to the Spirit, we have our mindset attuned to this new reality. You're no longer the product of your upbringing, your family, your education, your culture, even your own decisions. Yes, those things are are there, but they don't define you. 
They don't give you your deepest identity. What, what defines you is the Father's love for you and his commitment to your healing and, and your wholeness. You have a new story, and it, and it begins and it ends with God's love for you. When you really believe this, it has the power to change your relationship with God, with others, and even with yourself. I was reminded of this recently listening uh, to a recording of a, of a, a hymn sing uh, led by a campus pastor named uh, Kevin Twitt. And Kevin has led a, a, a movement of reviving old hymns among many college students, and he loves to tell the stories of these hymn authors. He tells the story of one 19th century composer named Henry Light. And he, he said about Henry Light, he said this, Henry Light had a wretched father. His father and mother split up. He got sent off to a boarding school. His father remarried, and from then on, he would write letters to his own son, and he would not sign them your father. He would sign them your uncle. In other words, Henry's father never let him call him father again. And yet every one of his hymns, whether it's Praise My Soul, The King of Heaven, Abide With Me, Jesus, I, My Cross, Have Taken, for every one of them, the father image for him is a warm and comforting one. Which I think just shows the power of the gospel and the scriptures to deconstruct and, and reconstruct even something so basic as what does it mean to have a father? Friends, we all need to be deconstructed and, and reconstructed like this. But we can have confidence about this process because God himself is working inside of us by his spirit. Let me end with this. Do you notice how beautifully Trinitarian uh, these verses we read are? We hear of the Spirit of God, uh, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead. You know, Paul's not giving us a, a systematic theology here, but you can see how the early church quickly formulated the, the doctrine of the Trinity from passages like these. An another great Trinitarian passage comes from Jesus' baptism. As Jesus is being baptized, the Spirit comes down like a dove, and then the Father speaks from heaven. You remember what he says? You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is what I want to leave uh, you with today. If you belong to Christ, there is no condemnation. His spirit is in you. His life, his righteousness are yours. And the Father speaks these words over you. The same words he spoke over his own son. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess to you um, that we hear these words. There is now no condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we understand them with our minds. We even give our assent to them. Uh, 
but so often they don't take deep root in our hearts. We don't see you as a loving father, but we uh, see you as a rule giver, uh, as a God full of demands. Uh, We don't love the things that you love. We don't love you. And so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, uh, that our hearts would be different, that we would walk according to your Spirit, that we would live into these truths in, in a deeper way in our own lives, in our families, in our church, and in this community, that we would be changed. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the confident assurance that we can have uh, that you, are, uh, you, have not, you have not left us to figure this out on our own, but that you are right here with us in the mess. Uh, and that you are committed to our healing and our wholeness. We thank you, and we give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.